early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. This is the
your praise. Sing the name of Jesus. The Lord is risen, church. He is risen indeed. We're celebrating the King of Kings today. Let's sing with joy. There's a king. There is a king sitting on a higher throne. He rules the world. All of history he owns. His name is Jesus. We stand as one as the people of the cross. We're marching on for the victory is won. Yes, it is. Our king is Jesus. Our king is Jesus. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Though kingdoms fall, He is reigning still. He is Jesus Christ, the King. The children of the Lord, our hope is Jesus. What you began, we are sure you will complete. And by your spirit, everything will be set free.
grave that conquered death is the same Jesus we worship today, church. Come on, let's sing this out. This Jesus carried our shame. This Jesus rose from the grave. The same Jesus worship today. Worship today. Oh, yes, we do. Came to us with grace and in truth. He's still with us. He's still on the move. The same Jesus is making us new. He's making us new. So we believe today. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. He's still keeping all his promises. Same Jesus. The same Jesus.
team thank you to God be the glory amen so before I pray I want you to know that in terms of ministry in terms of touching lives and impact God the Holy Spirit is favoring and blessing the ministries of Wheaton Bible Church here locally as well as around the world and having said that I want to thank you for your generosity and want to invite you to continue to give and to give generously to the ministries of Jesus Christ. When you give to Wheaton Bible Church, you are giving ultimately to our Lord. And it's an act of obedience, it's an act of discipleship, but the Bible tells us it's also a privilege and a joy. So thank you, church. We are excited about what's going to happen as we continue to move. Uh, into this year. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, thank you for all the gifts you have given us in and through your Son, for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, all activated this weekend because Jesus was crucified, Jesus was raised from the dead. And we ask, Father, that you would work that you would bless us, that you would draw us to yourself, that we might see you. And we pray, God, as 
We look into your word and what your word tells us about the resurrection. We need you by your spirit to open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear. Father, you know how stressed we are. You know how uh, busy our culture is, how busy we are, all the things we have going on. And would you speak to us in the quietness of this moment? For Jesus' sake, amen. So today, I want to talk about hope. And I want to welcome all of you that are here, all of you that are watching online. What an incredible day Easter is. What an incredible week, Holy Week is. What an opportunity to reflect, an opportunity to press the love of God into our lives, that love that we desperately need. So I want to talk about Easter hope. Actually, I shouldn't say I want to just talk. I want to offer you hope, Easter hope. The hope God offers you through the Holy Spirit because of the bodily resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. You see, according to Christianity, hope is not found in politics. Higher taxes or lower taxes. It is not found in possessions or popularity or performance. According to Christianity, hope isn't a principle. It's a person, Jesus. And because just as Jesus was raised from the dead... The good news of the gospel is that the moment you and I believe in Jesus, we are also spiritually raised from the dead and reborn. Because the resurrection, the resurrection power brings the past power of God in creating the heavens and the earth, the future power of God in restoring one day the heavens and the earth into our lives right here, right now. So as believers in Christ, we can say Jesus is in me, Jesus is beside me, and Jesus is for me. That's the hope of the resurrection. So much so that even though hell may be breaking out around me, I can have heaven inside me. And that's what I want for you today. That's what I want to offer you today. And so I want to address four questions uh, around this subject of hope. First of all, what is hope according to God's word? And then second, what has happened to hope in our culture? And then third, more specifically, what is Easter resurrection hope? What does it look like? What does it mean? And then finally, what's the significance of this for our lives here in 2021? So let me begin with hope. According to the Bible, hope is confident expectation in God. In other words, it's not I hope so, it's I know so. It's the difference between saying I hope it stays warm Versus, I know the sun is warm. So let me demonstrate this confident expectation. This is the famous faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance 
about what we do not see. Now that verse tells us that hope is a confidence. Faith is a confidence. It's a confidence that we hope for and are assured about all that God offers us in Jesus Christ. Let me press it. Let's go to verse 6. And without faith, faith it is impossible to please him. Please God, because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those. And notice, those who earnestly, not casually, but earnestly seek him. So what is faith? Faith is craving God. That's verse 6. It's seeking God. It's seeking God earnestly. It's striving to lay a hold of God. It's something you do from the inside out because God is everything to you. It's our response to Jesus' greatest and first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Hope is the certainty that my God loves me, that my God's going to take care of me. And in verse 6, that's expressed when it says, my God will reward me uh, to the extent I seek him. And I am passionate about that. Now, uh, let me digress for just a second because I want to make a, a, a couple of comments here. Hope is in short supply, often in our lives, even as believers. So there are a lot of different ways we grow hope, but before I leave this, I want to mention one, and that is biblical self-talk. And by that I mean, instead of you being dominated by your feelings, you always listening to your feelings, that you press back against your negative feelings, I mean anxiety and anger and, and despair, by bringing God's word to bear on it so you talk to yourself. Now I want to show you an illustration of this in the Old Testament. This is pre-resurrection. So in Psalm 42 and verse 5, we read, I just love this. Why, my soul, are you downcast? So this is self-talk. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God instead. For I will yet praise him. He is my Savior and my God. So instead of listening to your emotions, and I hear I mean your negative emotions, uh, you use God's word to press into those emotions and you say, hey, this is what God's word says. And you put your hope in doing so in God because you tell yourself, he is my savior, he is alive from the dead, and we have the advantage of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to talk to yourself, to develop more and more hope in your life, especially in those moments when we find ourselves so very discouraged. Now let me illustrate this. <clears throat> uh, imagine two men, same age, same background, uh, same temperament, and you are uh, in, in charge of a manufacturing operation, uh, an assembly line at the company where you work. And so you decide to hire both of these men. And you say to them, your responsibility on this assembly line, assembly line is to take part A and rivet it to part B. Now there's all sorts of rivets and that operation is going to take 15 to 20 minutes uh, and it'll um, get a little quicker as, as you uh, get on with it, but you need to be really careful because then you're going to hand it to the next person on the line. And you tell them that they will have the exact same 
um, breaks, they'll work in the same environment, and um, you say you're going to work seven and a half hours a day, and this is what you're going to do five days a week, and they say we're in, and so you say to the first man, I'm going to pay you $42,000 a year, but you say to the second man, I'm going to pay you $1.2 million a year. Now a month goes by. Can you predict what happens? At the end of the first month, and by the way, let, let me stop and say, I've worked in the assembly line. And actually, I had to work in front of a blast service furnace, not service, furnace, and take this part out of the furnace and move it down uh, the line, and it was just horrible. It was the worst job I ever had, and one day I screwed up. And the whole assembly line came to a screeching halt, and I immediately got fired. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> but anyways, I say this because I have all sorts of respect for people who work uh, assembly lines and, and the concentration it, it, it takes. So you say to this other guy, you're going to get 1.2, the other guy, the first guy, uh, um, uh, 42000 a year, and there's a huge wage discrepancy, and a month has gone by, like I, I just mentioned, and, and the first guy, is overheard saying, I just hate this job. It's so repetitious. It's, it's going to kill me. Um, but the second guy is telling everybody how happy he is, how much he loves his job. Now, what's the difference? Both men are, are doing exactly the same thing. Well, the difference is their expectation about the future. Now, the, my point here isn't isn't that money solves all our problems, right? Okay, let me say that again. We understand, <laughs> as followers of Christ, that money doesn't solve all our problems, right? Okay, good, I can go on. Uh, and that's not my point. My point is, what you know or believe about your future determines how you experience your present. One guy loved his present the other guy hated it now hope resurrection hope is the confidence that jesus died for my sins and he's alive from the dead and he's inside me he's beside me and he is for me and friends that confidence that hope changes everything so we can say with New Testament eyes, what Psalm 42 says, uh, even though I'm downcast, even though I'm close to despair, uh, I'm going to put my hope in God because my Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. He is here. Inside me, beside me, and for me. You see, the resurrection, if we have hope in the resurrection, if we have this resurrection hope, it changes everything. It's a window through which you look at everything in your life. And, and I, I got to tell you, it works. It, it, it changes our life. So, for example, when my first wife developed cancer, it was dying, it was this hope that carried me. When Rhonda's first husband uh, had cancer and was dying, it was this hope that, that cared, carried Rhonda. I'm telling you from deep anguish and deep personal experience, resurrection hope changes everything in your life. 
And it's the key to overcoming being downcast and disturbed. Now let me go on. What's happened to hope? What's going on in, in our culture today? And, and the short answer is in certain quarters of our culture, hope is tanking because hope is increasingly misplaced. So for example, between 1999 and 2017, the suicide rate in the United States increased by a third. While during the same period, it went down in China and India. And that's pre-COVID. Last year, from January to September, during COVID, the number of people seeking treatment for depression and anxiety increased by 93%. It almost doubled. And the hardest hit age group was the 11 to 17-year-olds. Do you see the tragic irony? We live in the most affluent culture in the history of civilization. And we are slowly becoming one of the most hopeless. Why? Because we have severed. Now follow me in this. This is critical to understand what's going on today. We have severed the sacred order from the social order. So for example, when the United States began, it was founded on a hope in God. 50% of the signers of the Declaration of Independence uh, had some for, form of seminary training. But the decades go by and that hope in God shifts to a hope in our nation. Uh, the economic horsepower, the military power, increasingly uh, uh, confidence in uh, science and, and technology over the decade after decade after decade. But today, in our secular culture, we have lost both, and I'm speaking generally, we have lost both hope in God and in our country. So the only option we have is to place our hope in self. Self. So I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, I was a really rebellious kid, and I was a difficult teenager. And I had conflict after conflict with my uh, mother. And my mother used to quote that line, it's from the poem Invictus, to me saying, Rob, you're the master of your fate, you're the captain of your soul, get it together. And the problem is I couldn't then and I can't now. Self can't handle the weight we put on it. Uh, and so as a result, it's like we live in a culture where people increasingly are skating on thin ice and many are drowning. Or we live in a culture uh, like where we're all running a, a marathon barefoot in the snow and increasingly in many areas of our culture, there's a whole lot of blood everywhere. Uh, you see, if there is no sacred order, 
then all we are left with in the social order is impulses or our impulses. So, for example, you're a 12-year-old, and you're struggling like all 12-year-olds do, and, and you're struggling with gender identity. And uh, today, uh, because all you have are your impulses, as you begin to make this uh, decision that will have consequences for the rest of your life, one of the most uh, important decisions in your life, there's no sacred order. And all we're left with are our feelings. Uh, so this is the rise, what some people call the rise and triumph of the modern self. And I don't know, I'm not a prophet, but I, I, I worry, will it be our fall? Instead of placing our hope in God, we place our hope in our impulses. And friends, it, it just won't work. It doesn't work individually, and it certainly doesn't work culturally. So what is our problem? What's happened? Our hope is tanking because our hope is misplaced. Now let me go on. Let me move from, if you will, that, that negative moment to the positive moment because I want to talk about the resurrection hope. God knew where we would be. That's why he, he sent Jesus. So what I want to do is go to the New Testament book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, and look at a chapter near the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26. Now I want you to understand the context. In Acts chapter 26, it's 25 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the apostle Paul is on trial. He's on trial for his faith in the resurrection. And what's at stake is his possible execution. It was a very difficult, uh, tense moment for the Apostle Paul, and most people uh, would have been struggling with any form of hope. Most people would have been hopeless, but not Paul here. So let's pick it up in verse 2 of Acts chapter 26. Paul is speaking, and he says, King Agrippa, now King Agrippa was the king of the Jews. I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. Now, I want you to understand, Paul is a Jew, so you have a Jew talking to a Jew who happens to be the Jewish king about other Jews. Now, let's bounce down to verse 6. And notice the repetition of the word hope. And it is because of my hope and what God has promised. I'll come back to that. What's promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. And here he unpacks what he means by hope. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now hope here is a synonym for the resurrection. Better, it's a synonym for the gospel. Uh, that Jesus died for our sins and he was raised from the dead so that the moment we believe, we find forgiveness. Uh, we're adopted in God's uh, family. Uh, we become a new creature in Christ and on and on. But what I find so important and significant is because Paul is speaking to a Jew, he says this is exactly what the Old Testament prophesied. This is exactly what the Old Testament 
predicted. It pointed to Jesus. So the Bible is one story with one hero. And the Old Testament looks to Jesus and the New Testament unpacks Jesus. But Paul is only warming up. So let's go down to verse 22. And he continues his testimony. But God has helped me this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. And here it is, that the Messiah would suffer, be crucified, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Now at this point, Festus. Now Festus is the Roman governor. Agrippa reports to Festus. Festus is the number one man in Palestine. And he interrupts Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. That's a remarkable statement. The resurrection is true and reasonable. The king, and he means King Agrippa, is actually familiar with these things, and I can speak freely or boldly to him. I am convinced that none of this, he's talking about the ministry of Jesus, has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for the chains, except for these chains. Now this is amazing. Do you see the spiritual spinal column? Paul is demonstrating his backbone, his tenacity, his resurrection hope. Hope here, resurrection hope here for Paul is fearlessness in the face of death. It's boldness about what you believe, regardless of the consequences. It's confidence that in life's tightest, most difficult moments, that Jesus reigns because he's been raised from the dead, that he rules. And so your life, even though it feels like it, is not spinning out of control. It's under Jesus' careful control. So I want to go under the surface by asking the question, what did Paul know about the resurrection that we need to know? Uh, why was he so confident so we can uh, be confident as, as Paul is confident? Well, let's go back to the end when he's speaking to Agrippa. And what does he say to Agrippa? Now, by the way, Agrippa is an opponent of the faith. He says, Agrippa, this, none of this surprises you. I, I mean, uh, you heard... Uh, maybe saw the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. You heard reports about his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, Agrippa, it didn't happen in a corner. In other words, Paul is saying to the Jewish king and opponent, you know this happened. Now this is an exceptional argument for the historical reality of the resurrection. Because if Paul was making this up, the Jewish king the Roman king, both opponents of Christianity, or the Roman governor, I should say, would call him on it and would have Paul eventually executed. 
But what does the Roman governor say? Festus doesn't say this didn't happen. He attacks Paul's character and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Leading me to conclude some things never changed because this is exactly the nature of political discourse today, right? I mean, never mind the facts, you're nuts, you're whacked out. <laughs> so here, what we see is Paul understands that the resurrection is history, not myth. The second thing he understands is that the resurrection shatters the notion that miracles do not exist. Now, I don't know why Agrippa and Festus refused to believe, but I do know you cannot get to the resurrection with a self-imposed bias, we call it a presupposition, that miracles do not exist, that God doesn't exist, that Jesus couldn't have been God, or more often than not, that a self-imposed bias that I frankly am really a good person and I don't need a savior. Now, never mind uh, that Jesus' resurrection is the best attested fact in history. My worldview won't allow me to believe. Now, why should your worldview be any more privileged than the early church and the apostle Paul? Now, yes, these people were pre-scientific, but they were not gullible. Jews and Romans had absolutely no categories for someone being bodily raised from the dead in the middle of history. No one in the first century believed that. And we have to be careful when we look back in time with what authors call cultural arrogance. They're pre-scientific, so they had to be gullible. No, not about the resurrection. Uh, no way. And we need to understand that our uh, uh, views are often formed by the culture we live in today or by our co-workers or our friends or our uh, classmates or the school we went to. Paul here stakes his life on the resurrection. Now, would he really do that if he knew it was a lie all along? Now, let me bring this uh, to a conclusion and ask, what is the significance of this today? I wanna, there's a lot of things I could say. I want to mention three. Jesus' resurrection means if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that yours is guaranteed. Jesus' resurrection guarantees your resurrection. Because as a believer, you know that you are being carried by God, carried by the Holy Spirit to a glorious end. And that one day along the way, God is going to lift you out, raise you up out of this broken world. And your suffering, your heartache, your pain will be no more. And you will be made perfect. And the New Testament tells us 
that part of that perfection is that each and every one of us as believers in Christ will receive what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is a resurrection body, just as Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, was in a, a brand new resurrection body. Now let me talk about this for a moment. Uh, let me illustrate our, our resurrection bodies and just how it might work. So, you know this girl, or you, I should say you knew this girl, you knew her fairly well when she was eight years old. Uh, you lose uh, contact and eventually you bump into her and um, you had no idea she had turned into a 37-year-old beauty. And you look at her and you say, wow, is she different. But as you look a little more closely, you say, you know, I see some similarities from the girl I knew so well that I remember back when she was eight. And so after the resurrection, as Jesus began appearing to uh, multitudes of people, not just to disciples, but to crowds large and small, uh, there was a sense in which Jesus was absolutely different and people didn't recognize him. He was in his glorified, resurrected body. But there was also often when they did recognize him and they understood that this was Jesus. That's the way it will be for you and me as believers in Christ in heaven. We will be made perfect on the inside and the outside. We will have these new resurrection supernatural bodies. And we will be totally different, infinitely different, and, and perfect. But I will recognize you, and you will recognize me. And you will always be you, glorified and perfect in eternity. Now let me go on. Jesus' resurrection guarantees your forgiveness. Uh, religion, I'm talking religion here, teaches don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that, and then just maybe you can earn enough points to be good enough to go to heaven. Sort of like you earn points on your credit card. Now, secularism, which is also a form of religion in that it deals with final things, comes along and says, no way, God doesn't exist, there is no ultimate right or wrong, so you live however you see fit. Uh, live life with gusto, because when you die, there is nothing. Now both are forms of bondage. The one is bondage to morality. The other is bondage, and here we go again, to self. But Christianity comes along and says, no, no way. Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, died on the cross so that you might, when you believe, find forgiveness and mercy, uh, peace and purpose, wholeness and happiness. And what is the resurrection? The resurrection is proof. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is like the receipt you get when you check out of Costco, right? So this is a theological illustration. So uh, what is that uh, going on? So you get this receipt after you have paid, and you have a receipt that proves that the one million things you just bought at Costco 
have been paid for. So you hand the receipt or that person, uh, that nice man or woman looks at your receipt and, and you're good to go. The resurrection is the receipt across the sky that Jesus has paid your debt by dying for your sins and he's paid it in full. You see, the crucifixion is the payment. The resurrection is the receipt. The crucifixion is the payment. The resurrection is the receipt. It's proof that God has accepted the work of his son. Third, when you take the crucifixion and the resurrection together, and I'm doing that here, they offer you a pattern for living because... Together, they redefine power. It's called the great reversal. That power comes through surrender, comes through sacrifice, through humility. So think of Jesus through seeming weakness, by giving up power and giving up privilege, giving up confidence. Uh, comfort and, and consequence, and surrendering himself and, and succumbing to apparent defeat on the cross. That's the crucifixion. But the resurrection happened three days later, and that's the triumph. Not in spite of Jesus' seeming weakness, but because of it. What he did for you. And so is it surprising that when we come to the Gospels, what does Jesus call us to? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You see, the crucifixion and the resurrection together tell us that the way up is down. That the way to true power is to relinquish power. That the way to true riches is to be uh, radically generous with all God gives you. And the way to lasting happiness is not to focus on your happiness, but the happinesses of others. And, and friends, this is how Jesus saves the world. This is how he changes us. And to the extent we live knowing that the way up is down, in surrender and submission and humility and sacrifice, we too will triumph. Jesus is the hope of the world. He's intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. And if you've never done so, I want to invite you to come to him, to receive him, to trust him as your Savior and God. And if you have done that, and so many of you have, then I want to invite you to continue to come to Jesus, to see him, to behold him, to understand that because of the crucifixion and resurrection, he is now alive, and he is inside you, he is beside you, and he is for you. Let's pray. So, Father, we marvel at all you have done for us in your Son, at the grace you give us, at this resurrection power that comes to dwell inside us. And Father, uh, uh, knowing my heart, and after being a pastor for so long, I know that we desperately need this power to change. 
And we pray that in seeing the beauty of our Savior, you would begin anew a wonderful work in our lives. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we respond to our risen Lord. We sing. Thank you. 
moment for a minute. In the quietness of right now, do just that. Praise God. Praise God for Holy Week, for a Savior that died for you, a Savior that was raised for you. Let's do that now. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Amen. Now, before our, our benediction, a couple of things uh, quickly. Saturday, May 1st is CareFest. CareFest is our opportunity to go into the communities and to do projects and in schools and people's homes where there are different needs and we do a variety of different things and I want to invite you to register online at wheatonbiblechurch.org slash carefest and I want to encourage you uh, if you are here as a family to bring your family if you want to grab some friends to do it uh, do it as a small group and let's extend the love of Jesus Christ into our communities this is always every year a wonderful thing second thing I want you to know is beginning next Sunday we are going to start a two-week series on multi-ethnic ministry what it is what it isn't according to the Bible and what the implications are for us as a church as the church of Jesus Christ and then I want to talk about also another thing relative to next Sunday because beginning next Sunday we have decided we're going to make a, a couple of changes here uh, that are necessary. First of all, we're making progress as a culture against COVID. Um, we're, we're seeing uh, good trends. And, and second, we have this weekly problem where demand for worship space exceeds our capacity. So we're going to do two things. The first will address the capacity, and that is we're going to move from a three-chair separation to a two-chair separation to allow approximately 100 more people into our service, far below our capacity that we actually have. And then the second thing is that we are going to create a section where once you've come in with your mask on, you can take your mask off for the entirety of our worship service. And so we'll create those couple of sections, and I just want to remind you, we want everybody to wear masks as they come in and as they leave, but you, uh, if you're able to sit in this section, if you want to, you will be able to worship without a mask. And by the way, I expect those of you that are singing in the section without masks, man, we want to hear you. Uh, no more muffled voices, right? We want to sing to the glory of God. So, Father, we praise you. It is crazy. It is amazing to think that Jesus died for my sins, that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we honor you and we exalt you and we ask that you would make this increasingly real in our hearts and our minds. And all God's people said, amen. You guys have a great Easter. He is risen.